house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to Suburbicon, a town of great wonder and excitement. Hey there. Built with the promise of prosperity for all. Nikki, you need to get up. There are men in the house. Son, there's something I have to tell you. Those men killed mom. We've decided it'd be best if your Auntie Margaret came and stayed with us. Nikki needs a mother. We'll be strong. We'll be fine. Mr. Lodge? Yes. You know a character named Rizzoli? He's a loan shark. If you were into the mob for money, that might explain what happened to your wife. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Bus podcast, the only podcast that Bridget Wilson Sampras confuses for Steve Martin. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris Vile, and I'm here with my blonde doppelganger sibling who is somehow isn't my twin. Uh, it's Joe Reed. Hi, I'm unsure of how much affect to put into this performance. Jesus H. Like, I... Okay. I can't believe we watched a movie that made me think, oh, Julianne Moore's giving a bad performance. Okay, so, listeners, uh, taking you behind the curtain, Joe kind of lobbied for us to do this movie or another one, both of which I really didn't want to do. But this one specifically, like, just know how much I love you that I watched this movie for the second time. In my defense, A, I had never seen this movie before. B, I wanted to do either Suburbicon or Downsizing because they were both on Amazon Prime and they were free. Also... I thought with downsizing, because they're both Matt Damon movies, so if we do one, we can't do the other one for a while, which is fine. Yeah. I want to do downsizing at some point, because it's really the only opportunity we're going to have to talk about Alexander Payne, because it's the only time that Alexander Payne has had Oscar buzz and not cashed in on it. Right. I will say, though, like, as much as I loathe this movie, there's, like, a million talking points. Like, I I feel like this is one that's going to be, like... It, it, if we did a full dive into like every reason for the Oscar buzz or like how this movie kind of fell apart, like we yeah. could conceivably have like a four hour episode because it is actually kind of fascinating, at least in those terms, if not movie terms. Yeah. So anyway, we'll probably do downsizing at some point, but this one has, the, you're right, there's a lot of avenues to this. I think also the fact that this movie had Julianne Moore in it was sort of a tiebreaker. And. Yeah. What a cruel, what a cruel tiebreaker it is because I don't a tiebreaker like her that again in is split in half. Yes, thank you. Like it's such a bummer because it's like we, we never want to see a bad Julianne Moore performance. No. but like we get two bad Julianne Moore yeah. performances in this movie, and the writing does not help her out. Like the writing, her character makes no sense. We never get any kind of motivation for her character whatsoever. She's in full scenes where she's just stranded, and it's just like. I guess she feels this way, but you don't really know why, and it doesn't help her out. I don't know. It's 
it's it's frustrating. It's bad. Well, before we get too deep into the movie, we should remind our listeners we are talking about Suburbicon. Our minds are in Suburbicon. Suburbicon is directed by George Clooney, famously like Oscar hounded at any movie that he makes, including things like Monuments Men. We'll get conversation. Uh, yeah. We got to talk about Monuments Men at some point. Uh, Suburbicon, what some people may not realize is that the script originated from a Coen Brothers script that they wrote at the beginning of their careers around the Blood Simple time, sat around, they never filmed it, and then George Clooney was i guess just chilling with fran and the cohen's one day and was like what's this script on this shelf i guarantee you fran wasn't around because fran would have had the presence of mind to be like boys no george is coming over Uh, got it i'm going i'm going to the grocer um uh But anyway, George Clooney and his uh, screenwriting partner, Grant Heslov, did a polish on the script. Um, The Coens still get the top billing on. uh, I mean, that could be like a WGA like rule thing. But probably, yeah, it does seem like there was just like a little bit like tweaked with this script. Oh, there's a Um, full grafting on of a whole entire other storyline. That's like not yeah, yeah. We'll get into it, but it also stars as we mentioned, Matt Damon two different Julianne Moores one who is blonde, one who is not and then... And then becomes blonde for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, just to like, uh, yeah, we'll get into it. Um, Oscar Isaac and young star Noah Jupe, who we know now from uh, A Quiet Place. He's also coming out in a movie this year where he plays Shia LaBeouf that is written by Shia LaBeouf. Oh, he's in that movie. Yeah, he is playing young Shia LaBeouf. Um, Suburbicon premiered at Venice in competition. I have no idea why. Also played Toronto International Film Festival before opening wide Halloween weekend of 2017. Perfect. Joe. Yeah. Now that we've given a little preamble, would (laughs) you like to give a 60-second plot description to our listeners? Sure, I will. I'm ready when you are. Are you ready? Yeah. Is your mind in Suburbicon? As much as it's ever going to be, yes. Okay. Your 60-second plot description begins now. Okay, so it's like the 50s or maybe the early 60s. It's whatever, idyllic American, the the America that some people want to make great again. Anyway, um, is racist as hell is what I'm telling you. So there is a uh, suburban development called Suburbicon, and this black family, the Mayerses, move in there, and the locals get real, real pressed about it, and they decide to, like, be very overtly racist to them and threatening to them, and, like, they build fences, and they heckle them, like, during the day while they're doing their, like, laundry and shit, and they don't let them shop at the supermarket, and they genuinely, uh, they eventually, like, set their car on fire, and it's bad. While this is all happening, next fucking door or across the yard like Matt Damon and his family includes his paraplegic wife and her sister both played by Julianne Moore and there's an insurance scam where they both conspire to kill the sister to kill the sister and take the insurance and then the little son catches on to it and then a bunch of people die by the end and then no the stories never merge together and it's and that's time I think yeah. I got most of that in. I didn't mention what's his nuts from True Detective, who's like the scariest human being, just in terms of how he looks. And at least I think is the only performance in the movie that really feels true to a Cohen Brothers like aesthetic well, for lack okay, of a better. Okay, so let's tone. like you mentioned in the in the rundown that this script was written by the Cohens, 
right after Blood Simple. And you're right, Glenn Fleshler is the 2017 equivalent of what um, I almost called him Arlie Ermey. Um, who's the actor in Blood Simple? Fuck. I think it's Arlie Ermey. Let me look. No, because isn't Arlie Ermey the guy from Full Metal Jacket? M. Emmett Walsh is who I was thinking of. Where it's just like Glenn Fleshler is the 2017 equivalent of M. Emmett Walsh in that, like, that's the. Like, if Emmett Walsh were the age he was back then, like, that's who he would be playing here. And it's just sort of like, that's the clearest indication to me that that whole, like, subplot is the clearest indication to me that this movie was written around the Blood Simple time. But it's interesting. Blood Simple is 84. Then this script is written. It's told. It's said like within the year or two after it, but in eighty yeah. six, eighty six is when Blue Velvet comes out. David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which is like to me, and I think to a lot of people, it's sort of like the urtext of suburbia is not what you think it is. Like the idyllic vision of perfect fifties suburbia in America. Like, peel back the layers and all sorts of fucked up shit is happening as a metaphor for, you know, the fucked upness of, you know, people's racial attitudes and social attitudes in the 50s being not nearly as happy, you know, as yeah. the image. Certainly for, like, 80s filmmaking, it was, like, the big definitive one that it's, like, yeah. you really touch that topic now that this movie has done it. So, like, well, and originally... So many, right. And so many movies did t- touch it in the in the aftermath of that, but all of them seem derivative of that. And I feel like, yeah. and I'm probably like drawing, you know, good qualities onto the to the Coens when I say this, but like, I imagine that the Coens looked at that and were just like, we can't top this, so we're just going to stick this script in a drawer, and they never touched it again. And ultimately, it's Clooney who pulls it out again and wants to make it. And that, like, Clooney has always, to me, seemed like the Coen Brothers fan who, you know, started to be able to star in Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. Starting with, I think, Oh Brother was his first, right? It's Oh Brother, and then um, Intolerable Cruelty, and... Wait, what other Coens has he been in? Uh... Burn After Reading he's in. And just generally... He's good in, I don't like Intolerable Cruelty as a movie, but I think generally he's fun to watch. Hail Caesar, he's also in. He's fun to watch in Cohen's movies. I feel like he's sort of, his comedic sensibilities get sharpened. I think he's, he generally seems to be having a great time when he's in Cohen Brothers movies. And so you can, even from like Leatherheads, I feel like Leatherheads was the first time it was just like, oh, he wants to do this sort of like pastiche old old tiny movie. Right. In a way that the Coen brothers would have done it. Leatherheads is bad. Leatherheads is a movie that's interesting. I don't know if I could tell you for sure whether I've seen Leatherheads. I don't I remember have things not. about Leatherheads. I could have seen it, but I don't remember anything specific about it or like the plot beyond the fact that it's like football. Yeah, early days American football. Yeah. Okay, but the like thing like you say he's like the Cohen's fan that got to be in Cohen's movies, but like I and I think this is one of the major problems with the movie. Like I think this is easily George Clooney's worst movie as a director, but like what is his authorial identity? 
because right. he is very much always chasing the like pastiche or the tone of directors he's already worked with. Yeah. Even though I think he's made some good movies because it's like the Coens are an example. Steven Soderbergh is an example. Yes. That's a good um, that's a good point. And, like, and I think the one that seems the least like that of all of them is well, I don't know, because I feel like I don't know what the Ides of March is supposed to be. And I think I mean that's, that's probably chasing like a Sidney Pollock aesthetic. Yeah, that's a good point. That's but a good point. like he's never really worked with Sidney Pollock, but like that's a for his generation of filmmaker, like that's a very influential Yeah. Um like director. Um but like I, it's just I don't understand where I mean like we don't have to get into like the politics of George Clooney because he's a very outspoken liberal. And it's like, this is also very much a movie that is like very much like the green book of it all, that it's like, it thinks that it's saying something like progressive. Right. When it's really just being this kind of gross portraiture. That's like, it's like, sure. Yes. Obviously racism is bad, but like that is not enough. It's it's the kind like, of thematically, movie. It's the kind of movie that you almost can't believe that nobody pulled him aside before it like got finalized and was like take a step back and look at the whole thing and tell me if you really if this is really the movie you want to make because what it ultimately ends up being. So the Cohen brothers have the script and their script is the entire Matt Damon Julianne Moore con artist sort of, you know, yeah, violent and and kind of mean. It's very sort of like that whole side of things is just there is not an ounce of sugar in that thing. And you can like that's a very Coen Brothers thing. They don't really have a whole their whole thing is that they don't have a ton of, you know, sympathy for their characters. With but a then, more distinct filmmaker too, like the Coens versus George Clooney, you could make it kind of darkly funny. But of like none of that's the like that's the undercurrent career. of humor works in this movie. So then ultimately it just makes it kind of gross because it wants to be funny. Right. So to that script then come Clooney and his producing and writing partner, Grant Heslov, who did Good Night and Good Luck together. And I think also Heslov was was with him on Ides of March. And Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah. So on to that storyline, they twin it with this storyline of the black family who moves into the suburban development and are harassed from like minute one, which is based on a true story. Um, I can't remember the town in Pennsylvania that it was uh, shit, but it was like this, this thing actually happened. Um, and admirable of Clooney to want to tell that story. Certainly, you know, somebody could and should have told that story, but he, he sort of sews it awkwardly to this Matt Damon con artist story. Yeah. And in doing so, uh, relegates it to subplot status. Never Not ties just subplot it. status, but, like, these... This black family is just, like, ciphers. Like, they exist not as people. They're right. just, like, these ideas to tell a very white story and have a very white perspective. It's essentially like while all of this white villainy was happening, no one was paying attention to it because they were all busy harassing this law-abiding black family out of their development. And it's like, ah, yes. 
isn't that something? And it's just like, okay, but like, just so we could all sort of scratch our chins and, and nod at this, at this movie, you have taken this entirely rich and, and terrible, but like, uh, ultimately, you know, interesting story and fully flattened it and fully relegated it to the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, are perpetuating the same kind of uh, sort of robbery of humanity that thing that the thing actually was. It's like yeah. congr- congratulations, all your good intentions have like circled you back to this cul-de-sac of uh, erasure. Like I mean, I, I, yeah, I, we can't even say erasure anymore. Uh, no, but it's totally. But yes. like, it's true. It is. That's what it is. I think the one thing that's like really engaging and fascinating is like always in the background you're seeing these this like real television footage these like news right. programs right. where they're interviewing these like horrible people and they're like saying things like oh well I think that they should have rights but essentially I don't want them to live near me because I don't want because I'm racist and it's like that is even backgrounded for just like oh look at this cool thing and i'm like that that feels like gross that it like feels like a flourish rather than that's what is it's not incorporated in a way that like kind of does justice to the gravity of it yeah plus like there are countless examples in coen brothers movies of these sort of side characters who have this spark to them and who are very memorable and who you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're ridiculous, sometimes they're very lifelike, but they all sort of manage to pop off the screen and are given, you know, attention on a script level, and nobody, not the black family, nor the people who are tormenting them, really, ever really, to the point where, like, there's a scene in the supermarket where the grocery store manager Basically, it's just like everything in your cart costs $20 and, you know, you'd be better off shopping elsewhere, trying to, like, push this woman out of their store. And Julianne Moore playing the sister, the, the, the you know, surviving villainous mm-hmm. twin, um, is there in the scene. She's working at the checkout counter. But she doesn't even, like, she's, she might as well not even be there for all of the agency, or even, like, her lack of agency isn't even a character point. It's just an absence of anything going on. She just yeah. doesn't do anything. She sort of, like, looks a little bit abashed, but, like, not really. And she might as well not even be there in the scene. The only real reason that she's there is to just be like, ah, see, these two things are happening at the same time. And you just get the feeling that the Coen brothers would have, like, much, like, filled in those lines and colored within those lines a lot more interestingly. I mean, sure, but I also think there's a reason that the Coens didn't produce this movie. Because they realized that they didn't really make that much of an interesting script from this. Um, You mentioned, like, the side characters not really having any life to them. And I think that's even true here because you have like Oscar Isaac, who's a great Coen Brothers actor. Yeah. Um, and has. Like, I actually two like him in this, and, and I like his character. I think that's the one moment where the movie sort of comes alive. I think he's fine, but I think Clooney has no idea what to do with him. 
Well, I think that's true. I think, it, yeah, I, I think what I like yeah. of it probably comes mostly from Oscar Isaac. I think the performances are largely bla- bad. Julianne Moore, unfortunately, is not very good in this movie, but I feel like she's kind of hung out to dry. Like George Clooney was like, I saw Far From Heaven. Just do that in this, but be evil. And like, it doesn't really feel like she's asked to do much other than give a breathy voice. Matt Damon, I think, is really, really miscast. Yeah, he does not seem at all comfortable in this role at all. And like, that's fine. Like, I want to see... All actors like try to stretch themselves, but like there's nothing really actually menacing about him right. or funny. He's just kind of like this idiot, like nerdy dad who doesn't know right. how to like get away with having his wife killed for her insurance money, which is like a very Cohen's trope, but like very much so. It's never this milk toast. Also, um, we never get a sense of the sisters' relationship to each other, so we don't know why. She's she's just yeah. going along with it for seemingly because she's they're having an affair they're having an affair but like their relationship doesn't seem all that clearly defined. I think the kid's good. I think the kid actually. Yeah, I was gonna say Noah Jupe. I think is the best performance in this movie. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, it's frustrating. It's not like I had expectations for this movie. I remember even thinking after that the trailer looked bad, and I was like, oh, it's another bad George Clooney movie. Um, and then, so, it premiered at Venice. I can't remember where, during, at what stage of Venice it premiered. Because there's a point where Venice and Toronto sort of overlap. Because I don't feel like I had gotten the word that it was, like, demonstrably, provably bad. Until I was in Toronto. Well, I think both, both downsizing and... Uh, Suburbicon played Venice. Downsizing was the opener, and they got like Downsizing got really good reviews in Venice, and then it was downhill from there. Suburbicon, yes. I think, got like mixed reviews in Venice, and then yeah. both when they arrived at Toronto, cratered. So um, the thing about Toronto, just for like our listeners' edification, is there's so many movies in Toronto that it really is a a process of triage in terms of figuring out what to see you're sort of you're you're robbing peter to pay paul a little bit you're you're calculating well this movie i don't need to see because it opens in two weeks and i can wait and this movie i'm going to want to see because it might not open for another six months and you know i want to see x movie because i feel like i need to be you know up on it now rather than this other movie which feels like nobody's really talking about it so there's less of an urgency to it and Suburbicon at that point was one of those movies where it's just like, I'm maybe not super psyched about this because I don't think George Clooney has directed a good movie since Good Night and Good Luck. But it there's a chance that it's like, you know, a thing that people will be talking about. Certainly, I'd be able to write about it because it's... When am I not going to be excited about a Julianne Moore movie, etc. Right, exactly. So, but then I remember there's also these certain times in Toronto where word will sort of snake around the various venues and hallways and escalators and whatnot, that a movie is bad, so bad that you don't even need to see it because it's going to be that much of a dead-on-arrival kind of thing. I remember the one year the Tom Hiddleston, uh, Hank Williams biopic, uh, I Saw the Light. Yeah. Where I remember being waiting 
in a screening for something to begin. And I remember just these loud conversations of the people around me who had seen it earlier that day and were fully just like, no, it's done. It's dead. Nobody needs to see it. And I remember being like, okay, cool. I don't have to see that movie. I can see something else I maybe wanted to see more. And that was the thing with Suburbicon was just like, well, that's fine. Cross that one off the list and I'll see something that I was more enthused about seeing. So yeah. that to me was what Suburbicon was, was that one day word got everywhere that this thing was just like, not even just like forgettable or um, not essential, but actively bad. But that it was bad. actively terrible, actively which it bad. was. I think some of that also, because it. I think what it was was that it premiered before it played for press, which is sometimes not a good sign. Right. Um, but like, there's a little bit of nuance where it's like, if it's not really competing with anything in the schedule, then like, if it doesn't measure up, then the word spreads incredibly fast because like, it got everything out of the way on the schedule. So that's what people see. And yeah. I think that was one of those cases where it was like the premiere was just went over so terribly yes. and nothing else was competing with it. And um, I think you're right to the downsizing of it all too, was that Damon was also in downsizing, which went over a lot worse at Toronto than it did at Venice. We're like, yeah. I don't know if I talked to anybody who saw it in Toronto and liked it, including myself. Uh, I did not care for downsizing. So it all seemed like a type. Also, the other thing is that this is 2017, fall of 2017. Trump had been elected less than a year before. Um, and wait, remind me of the timeline. Me Too was about to start. Me Too happened like almost right after, right after. the Toronto Film Festival we're talking about. Right. So like this I mean, was... Me Too always existed, but in its current iteration. And Me Too doesn't have anything specifically to do with Suburbicon, but I'm trying to like orient myself within like the socio Politically what was going on time. as we're going to the movies. And just like we were not in a mood to give the Matt Damons of the world any more leeway than we needed to. It's not that this is Matt... also around the time that Matt Damon was putting his foot in his mouth about a lot of shit. Um, and and I want to be clear. I don't think <clears throat> Matt Damon's a bad person. I genuinely don't. I know some people do. We sort of we exist, you and me, at this nexus of um film Twitter and gay Twitter. And I I know how obnoxious it sounds when we talk about these things as if they're concrete nation states. But at this nexus of film Twitter and gay Twitter where Certain, like, things become these concrete sort of, like, truths, and one of them being, like, Matt Damon is canceled. <laughs> like, we well, cannot... Matt Damon said, just said a lot of dumb stuff. Like He said I... a lot of dumb stuff. He did the thing on Project Greenlight where he sort of, like, Which wouldn't was consider... Like, that was the worst yeah. to me, from what I can at least remember. Uh, was her name Effie Brown, the, the producer? I believe so. Uh, where he she's just sort of, like, brings up the idea of sort of a proactive approach to diversity in choosing your crew and your director of a movie. And he sort of like brushed that away with a, with the side of his hand and said, you know, diversity is a thing we handle in casting and, and, and has sort of doubled down on, he did, I think he was one of the me too quotes where he was just like, well, there's, you know, there's harassment and then there's harassment. That's not exactly what he said, but um, I don't think Matt Damon's a bad person. I think Matt Damon is a person who had gotten accustomed to being able to weigh in on a variety of topics. 
Uh, well, and I also uh, then think maybe he's now probably... we realize he shouldn't. He, you don't need to say everything that you think about everything unprompted. That, and I also think he's probably just someone who spends the majority of his time with other people in rooms with people who are just like him. Right, right. And honestly, a lot of people are. You know what I mean? Like that applies to a lot of people. And I think we were in we were in a socio political environment at that point where we did not in any way feel like giving the benefit of the doubt to somebody like Matt Damon. And, like, that's fine. But also, we were not in a mood to just be like, you know what, he's made these two bad movies, but let's just see him anyway because we owe him that. And it's like, no, maybe we don't. Well, at least from an awards perspective, this is coming two years off of The Martian, which created a lot of goodwill towards him. And, like, I think the closer that that Oscar got, to fruition like people started appreciating that performance more so it's like it it makes sense why both of these movies had a lot of discussion early that's interesting on, that you say awards, that because i his perspective i feel like i experienced the martian differently where the closer we got to awards with the martian with it winning the golden globe for comedy and all this, and everybody sort of got all up in arms about the Martians, a fraudulent comedy. That's and... a Twitter thing, though. That I don't... I'm speaking, like, anecdotally from what you read from, like, industry response. Sure, 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 and, sure, sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Certainly, I would have given him the Oscar that year over DiCaprio, who I continue to be unimpressed with anything about The Revenant. While admitting that, like, I'm glad we don't have that. Leo hasn't won an Oscar monkey on our back anymore. Like, right. I'm glad to not have to talk about that. So. I never even think about that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It did win some prizes at Venice, which I think is funny. Um, it, But, like, to the point where, like, I don't know what they were for because they're just sort of, like, the, you know. Weird niche prizes that are not actually from the festival jury. Like, yeah, they're just, like. like random italian words that i don't speak italian so it's just like ah the like francesco tutti award somebody threw a luncheon yeah that type of thing yeah yes yeah they all seem very vaguely sort of like santa barbara film festival where like julianne moore wins the franca sozani award and it's like okay like i don't know what that means but sure yeah which I don't think that's handed out every year. So it's like, congratulations on your ingenuity to invent prizes. Well, and then I, I checked last year's results, and apparently Salma Hayek won that award last year, and I don't know if she had a movie last year. At least not at the festival. That's what I mean. Yeah. Festival? So, fine. Whatever. Honestly, fine. So, but mostly, I think... We like Suburbicon was mostly dead on arrival. No, once yeah. award season sort of began in earnest, we were talking about you know The Shape of Water and Three Billboards. Three Billboards is a movie I thought of while I was watching this movie, and in terms of the ways in which conversations about race in America feel like they had moved so far beyond what Clooney was doing in Suburbicon, where it was just sort of like. You are once again basically just being like, look at how bad things were. Stop. Like, that's the end. And that was the end of it. And I was just like, at least with Three Billboards, as controversial as that movie was, and as much as a lot of people really did not like that movie and really did not think that movie was good on race specifically, I get why people watched that movie and were like, okay, here is where we are on race now in America, where it's... 
it's not just this sort of like neat little thing that we can put in our past. It is a thing that is current and and urgent and complicated in a way that like and again three billboards makes it complicated on behalf of the white characters and that is a big problem in that movie but i feel like i get why people saw three billboards and were like yes this is now this is 2017 and not just because it's It's very of a perspective and the people that thought that it was current have that same perspective right basically right there is Whereas something, i can see i see I mean, why nobody looked at suburbicon and was just like yes this is the movie that we need right now about race because well it i mean like not. this movie flat out died not just critically but like this is george clooney's lowest grocer as a director this movie made five million dollars like this movie was a flat out bomb but so it's like nobody sees it so nobody talks about it with this movie because like the movie right it doesn't register whatsoever but there is something like uh, i mean like i don't know if i can necessarily just leap to saying three billboards does something better i didn't say i didn't say better I, they... I said i understand yes, yes, why yes. it connected with people in a way that suburbicon didn't Right, I, I, I'm getting you. But at the same time, there is something that's so egregiously offensive about the way that Suburbicon just kind of glosses over things and only, like, dips its toe into something psychologically yeah. that, like, is a little bit more upsetting to me because it just feels very contrived and it does it feels even, like, purely from a white perspective uh, in, like, just what it's considering about the world and the way, like, yeah. Well, and I can also, I can see where Martin McDonough, I think Martin McDonough makes a movie like Three Billboards and is like, disagree with me if you must, you know, let's, let's let this movie maybe start an argument that I feel like is a good argument to be having. I being uh, Martin McDonough, if I'm Martin McDonough, Um, I can't see Clooney with Suburbicon being like, all right, you know, disagree with me. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Um, I think Clooney makes a movie like this and it's just like, ah, yes, this yeah. is right. It's this just is like true. this sanitized monolith of what racism is. Whereas like at least three billboards, I think is kind of, it's not a nuanced movie by any way, but it like has some like layers to the shit that it wades itself in. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's hard to like not think about it as much as we don't want to talk about three billboards. It's hard not to think about this those two movies because that was the movie that at Tor- that Toronto won the the People's Choice Award. Yep, like that was actively succeeding where Suburbicon was dying. Like it's a yeah. really real, you know, real time discovery right there. So yeah, it's a bummer. It's a bu- it's. I I read this anecdote where he Clooney had screened the movie for Norman Lear. Norman Lear being, you know, the guy behind All in the right, Family right, right. and um, one, you know, the original One Day at a Time and all this kind of stuff, who was no stranger to the provocations of racism in a 1960s, 70s con, uh, construct. And Lear's reaction to it was, this is the angriest movie that I've ever seen. And it's just like... I think is that, it though? Well, but I also feel like that's kind of stops short of a compliment, right? Where I do feel like there's a nastiness to this movie that you sometimes see in Coen Brothers movies, but it is but that nastiness in Coen Brothers movies is generally 
alloyed by other things. Like, I feel like the... Is that not just a default tone, though, because there's so little else going on in this movie? Probably. But, I mean, there's that... Everything about the Matt Damon, Julianne Moore portion of this movie feels blunt and heartless and cruel without any kind of leavening and i think right because julianne moore's impulse at any moment in this movie is to just kill someone right right she has what did you think of that scene where she kind of very sweetly but very menacingly tells the son to quit agitating and to quit saying he's going to he wants to he wants to leave and to essentially just like shut up or she'll send him away or whatever. And I think that scene is supposed to be sort of like quietly menacing and impressive. And mostly I'm just like, there's no, there's nothing in this performance for me to like compare it to or to set it off against. Yeah. Yeah. So because of that, I think it's, even like the tension of the scene is like entirely thanks to Noah Jupe's performance. Yeah. He's like giving a really good terrified child performance. Yeah. And everybody else. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think like it approaches something interesting in the scene, not her scene like that, but Matt Damon has a few scenes that do feel a little repetitive where yeah. he's essentially threatening his own son that those are a little bit more interesting um yeah and compelling in terms of like what the heartlessness of this movie is and like what the heartlessness of white suburbia is supposed to be right um but it's just this movie i don't i kind of other than clooney saying wanting to make a movie that says look at how bad racism is i don't understand what the impetus for making this movie is for him well like, and also if he wants everything to make that is movie, so flat if he wants to make that movie, make that movie. If he wants to make this Cohen adapt this Cohen Brothers script, adapt this Cohen Brothers script. Don't have to do them both at the same time. Yeah. It generally felt like it was expedience more than anything where he was just like, "Well, I've got two movies that take place in the general same time period rather than making them both. I'm just going to make them both at the same time." And it's just like, "I sure?" It kind of rings of a lot of like prestige filmmaking privilege hubris to me. Uh-huh. He's like, "Oh, well, I'm j- I'm going to make a movie with the Coen Brothers. I'm going to get these A-list stars, and it's just gonna be fine." Like that is the know. one thing that he's still able to do. Obviously, that's his like George Clooney superpower. Is that like any movie he directs is going to be incredibly well cast because I I I, I and not necessarily smartly cast, but like. There will be a lot of really good, really notable actors and actresses in that movie. I think any movie he directs, too, is going to have some degree of at least early Oscar buzz like this movie did. Absolutely. Because, like, as far Even as early this. predictions go, this movie, like, ran the gamut everywhere. People predicted Julianne Moore. They predicted Oscar Isaac. Yep. Agreed. And I think it, his next movie will be the same thing. We'll all have it in the back of our minds that his last two movies were Suburbicon and Monuments Men, which, by the way, Monuments Men, 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
I cannot imagine anybody was like, well, wasn't like, well, this is as bad as it gets. There's nowhere to go but up from here. Monuments and then Suburbicon Man had like the talk everywhere before it got moved into the next year. Monuments Men, I think, is perfectly fine. A 30% Rotten Tomatoes score is crazy to me. Well, it balances the 84% that Ides of March got, which is insanely too high. Yow. So I feel like there's a degree to which. Uh, are the Emmy Awards sometimes do this, where they react to things a year late? Where yeah. like it's it takes them an extra year to all catch up to how good like Juliana Margulies is in The Good Wife, so she doesn't win for her first season, but she wins for the second season because enough people have sort of like caught up to the show. And I feel like but the reverse is also true, where they reward things, and a year later they're like, "Oh yeah, this is bad." Sure, sure, but I think with Clooney, it's just like. There's an accumulation factor of like, oh, yeah, we were too nice to Ides of March. You know, Monuments Men is going to maybe get pounded a little bit. And then Suburbicon comes along and does actually worse than Monuments Men, which is like, yeah. did not imagine it possible. I just don't know if there, if he is not George Clooney as he is before he makes these movies. Well, if, this doesn't get me. If he's just some director, is there any, like, I just don't understand why, like, he, aside from not really having a voice, but, like, I I just don't think there's anything impressive, really, to what he's doing. I mean, Good Night and Good Luck is a good movie. I haven't seen it in years. I was going to say, like, I almost want to see it I again. I feel like we would not be as kind to it now, but Maybe it's kind not. of a movie that barely exists, you know? I remember liking it very much, but I also don't remember a whole lot specifically about it beyond the few sort of David Strathairn monologues as Murrow. Yeah. But I don't know. I'd like to see it again, to be sure. I One movie of his that I do definitely really like is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I think it's, a, I think yeah. it's an, the rare, underrated Clooney movie where people kind of forget about it. It was much more credited to Charlie Kaufman at the time. Than it was to Clooney because Kaufman was in the middle of his like insane hot streak from Malkovich to Adaptation. This was the same year as Adaptation, right? And, and that's I, partly why it like faded away. And I think if Sam Rockwell gives that performance now, now that the Oscars have decided that Sam Rockwell is their guy, I think it's easily a nominatable performance. I think yeah. he's really, really great in that movie. Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters, but I liked it a lot. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, can we talk about Oscar Isaac for a second? Yes, because like he was the one I think that people like widely really expected to like register for this movie and like the potential for a nomination because like Oscar Isaac is just one of those actors that at least at the time we knew that it was just going to happen. Like we, we it's an inevitability that, right? that that perform. Do we though? Because well, like, it feels question. like it feels like we're getting further and further away from the ex machinas, the like a uh, most violent year. And he's kind of become, I don't want to say boring, but like he's becoming more of like a studio actor, right? Like, he has the Star Wars movies, which I think he's great in the Star Wars movies, but he's doing, like, Dune and... I'm like, super excited for Dune. I well, just say. he's also, like, not necessarily picking roles that serve him all that well. Like, he played Gauguin in At Eternity's Gate, a movie that we've 
this is like the last time it will ever be brought yeah up yeah exactly context. and like even annihilation he doesn't really have anything to do so it's like i think it's but also i think he's gr- that that feels faded i think he's great in annihilation though that's the thing like everything's great about annihilation well like, yes so all right so what does he have upcoming hold on i'm bringing up his imdb page so he's got Dune, uh, he's currently on Star Triple Wars. Frontier on Netflix, a movie that, like, probably also, this is the last Ugh. time to be mentioned in a cultural context, the final Star Wars and Dune. And then he's doing the voice in the Adams Family animated movie. Triple Frontier is such a bummer because it's Oscar Isaac and J.C. Chandor again, who were so, made for such a, you know, exciting pair in, or with A Most Violent Year. And... Triple Frontier, maybe it's just my Affleck thing, but it all seems to be clouded by this, like, you know, Ben Affleck and his band of roughnecks kind of a thing. And I mean, it originated as a Catherine Bigelow movie, too. That's the bummer. Like, I remember how excited we were for her making that movie because it was supposed to originally be like Tom Hanks. Right. And right. then, like, that fell apart, I think, like, twice. And now it just Jason feels like. Andor has fallen apart before, and now it's just like. It's on Netflix, guys. It feels like the equivalent of, like, a Stallone movie from the early 90s, late 80s, but with, like, all this talent where it's just like, God, I love Oscar Isaac. God, like, I'm really interested in the movies of J.C. Shandor or uh, or Catherine Bigelow. And I like Garrett Hedlund and who else is in this movie? I like Charlie Hunnam. I'm, like, the guy who likes Charlie Hunnam. And I'm just like, ugh. I can't. Where they all have like, I'm looking at the cat list. They all have the cast list. They all have like their nicknames, like Ironhead and Catfish no, and whatnot. Pass. Just like goodbye. All right, so we're trying to just do like the Dirty Dozen again or something. Like I don't care. I super don't care. I'm sorry. One of the best things about me not having my my former job anymore is that I don't have to care about Triple Frontier if I don't wanna. Yeah, which is great. Um, yeah. So I guess he does have nothing but franchises lined up ahead of him. I mean, it's just interesting. He also is, like, getting cast in these, like, boring dad movies, like Operation Finale. I liked Operation Finale, I have he to say. He just, well, but, like, it doesn't register, right? Like, no, it doesn't. Most people don't even know what that movie is. It doesn't. Um, Listen, he was in life Like, itself, he was okay? a very exciting actor for a few years, and it felt really like an inevitability. But if the roles don't change, I don't know. Then again, he could be one of those actors that, like gets nominated for being in the right movie even if it's not if it doesn't excite us as much well but here's the other other work like adam driver here's the other thing because adam driver is not that great in that movie in In, my opinion in which movie black klansman oh oh i think he's good i always think good good. but like is he the most exciting performance in that movie is that the type of performance we expected adam driver to get nominated for no but he had been passed over for so many like good things i guess that's your point um uh, but like Star Wars Episode Nine is going to make a bajillion dollars. Like, Oscar Isaac is going to be very castable for a long time. And I think now that he's going to, he's past, you know, his Star Wars trilogy, not to say that he won't, you know, that character won't continue in future movies, because Lord knows what that franchise is going to keep doing. But, like, if Dune also hits, and, like, it's, he's not the crux character of Dune, but still, um, I think he's going to be remain very castable in movies for quite a while. So I don't think, I don't think the opportunities for Oscar Isaac have dried up and it still feels like he's an actor who is incredibly well liked 
pop like popularly and by you know people of taste and yeah. eventually i have to feel like i mean look at how long it took rockwell like rockwell was an actor who you know was appreciated by people as far back as confessions of a dangerous mind if not even earlier, earlier. Than that, galaxy yeah. quest or something like that and finally 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 it happened and once it happens it all happens. Do you know what I mean? Once they go in yeah. on you, they go all in on you. And like, sure, he was passed. Oscar Isaac was passed over for Inside Lewin Davis and A Most Violent Year and Ex Machina. All of which, all of which I would have nominated him for. Now I'm trying to think of like where, like where my nominations for Oscar Isaac would have come from. Definitely Ex Machina and definitely Ex Machina. Definitely Lewin Davis. And Lewin Davis isn't even like a Cohen's movie that I particularly love. But oh, like, I, love it. Uh, I think he's great in it, super great in it. Anyway, the other thing I will say about his performance in Suburbicon, in terms of like Oscar, like that we obviously couldn't have seen coming. And again, it's the Coens, so it's like Stranger Things have happened from the Coens producing nominations. But mm-hmm. he's in two scenes for the movie. Yeah, two scenes that are not very long, and they're fine. Oh, I think they're. I think they are the clear narrative highlights of that movie i think they are the point where the movie comes alive see i think it asks him to like do some like weird stuff that doesn't work for the movie or it's like the movie's not operating on that level i don't know um yeah yeah he also should have won an emmy for show me a hero and that miniseries got cruelly overlooked by the emmys in a whole lot of ways and that bums me out yeah anyway Anyway, what else do we want to say about Suburbicon? I... (laughs) That's it? Okay, Uh... I will mention this. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about downsizing, and we can save it for that movie. But, like, this was, like, a really, really, like, rough award season for Paramount. Oh, God. And, like, it was predicted for them to do rather well. It was the month after Mother. It was the month after Mother, Mother famously getting an F Cinema score. Um, which, which is a badge is of honor anyway. as far as I'm concerned. It is a badge of honor, but like Suburbicon got a D minus Cinema score. Yeah, less of a badge of honor. $5 million. Yeah. And then downsizing happens at Christmas, which like got very close for Hong Chao, but like otherwise the movie bombed. It got no nominations. It's I love like, Hong Chao. I'm super glad she did not get nominated for that role. Yeah. I That role... Yeah bums me out in in several ways i think they're i don't know it's tough for, I, it's one of I those roles that's tough for me to judge where it's just like a terrible role yeah but yeah like rough fall for paramount off top on the top of like a really rough like box office year where they have these huge bombs like monster trucks that cost like 300 million dollars <laughs> or 200 million dollars something Baywatch. Like that. ghost in the shell yeah, no, you're but right. Specifically from an awards narrative, like obviously you and I are huge fans of Mother, but like we are in our own rarefied like group. Sure. Well, um, I I don't think we're like, that rarefied. I think noted... a lot of people liked Mother, but I think yes. the public were not among that group. We so, will, yeah. we will save that for the eventual Mother episode, but like financial disappointment to say the least also we knew anything about that movie we never would have put it in oscar conversation 
and like that was a disservice to the movie to the other thing have w- that hanging was over. like there were so many like business things going on at paramount where like this was when it, people were talking about like is paramount gonna like go under because they were selling off their movies they had sort of like sold uh what's it called to annihilation Netflix. like at this very time because it came out a it came out in February of 2018. Yes. So, like, right after this, they sold off all of the international rights to Netflix for Annihilation. And then Cloverfield Paradox, they sold to Netflix for that Super Bowl premiere. And, like, you know, they were right to have done that. They didn't need another bomb on their hands, which Cloverfield Paradox would have been. But it feels like this year, this coming year, 2019, I think we're back to Paramount seeming... I mean, I don't know what's going on business-wise. I am not a business reporter. I don't get into that sort of thing. But, like, they've got Rocketman coming out in May, which I am dubious about, but everybody else seems very optimistic for Dexter Fletcher's follow-up to Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, go off, as they say. Um, Comparatively, like, my optimism is, in lieu of Bohemian Rhapsody, this movie at least looks palatable (laughs) here's what i will say it looks cheesy and grow it looks like cheesy and like tacky but it it the problems with look like with bohemian rhapsody at the risk of being impolitic were not that brian singer is a rapist like this is one of the things the twitter sort of conflates is brian singer is a rapist therefore bohemian rhapsody is bad both of those things may be true but one did not cause the other. Bohemian Rhapsody is bad because it is a musical biopic that refuses to paint outside the lines and and wrangles Freddie Mercury's life to fit the very same like bell curve arc of a life that we've decided must exist in musical biopics. There is Let's no not in- talk about Bohemian Rhapsody anymore. It was like we can mention it by name. Like, all right. Blech. I was I had a point to make, but I, I okay not. make your make your point. I just I, I just don't. All I'm saying is, if anymore. we think that Rocket Man is destined to escape that velocity, I disagree. I would be happy to be proved wrong because I love Taron Egerton and I certainly love the music of Elton John. But again, the fact that it's also directed by Dexter Fletcher gives me zero confidence that it's going to be anything different. And I think a lot of people are really sort of telling on themselves in a in a in a very interesting way when they don't feel like when they feel like the problem is that this one isn't directed by a rapist and it's like well you know art doesn't work that way. i mean i think in terms of like acceptability and like what like we're willing to allow regardless of the quality of the thing like i think that's important i guess but also like Yes, all of the things you said about Bohemian Rhapsody like make it bad, but also like it's a terribly made movie. Like it's constructed constructed so poorly, and like I don't know. It's like I made that movie in my backyard, and I don't even have a backyard. Well, um, right. It's a, it's a very poorly edited. It movie. looks like shit. It and who was in charge like of the post production process of that the movie? The studio. Well, but also like. To to whatever degree that Fletcher had any control, he was there. He was the one who was the director during post-production. Anyway, Paramount also this year has the new Ang Lee movie, Gemini Man, which I'm also, like, 
kind of raised eyebrow about, but it's Ang Lee, so I'm willing to I'm willing to give Ang Lee right. the benefit of the doubt, even though de-aging he's de-aging Will Smith, and it's also that frame rate yes. from Billy Lynn. God again. help us! I know. Um, they've got the new Terminator movie, which people seem to be excited about because Linda Hamilton is in it, plus Mackenzie Davis's ridiculously jacked torso. Did you see that poster where she just sort of looks like no. a big wall of muscle? Like, okay. Um, they've got the Reed Murano movie with Blake Lively that I believe played Sundance, but I'm not sure. I don't know. This is what happens when I don't go to Sundance. The point is, Paramount at least has some movies this year that people seem to be excited for, and good for them. Hurrah. Hurrah. Hurrah! We don't need Paramount to go under. We need as many big studios as possible. I know that's an odd thing to be saying, but in this era where theatrical distribution of movies seems to be in a precarious position i need all the big major studios to be as healthy as possible so so go see terminator whatever it's <laughs> go see terminator whatever please like give it a shot i'm gonna see gemini man i don't think i'm gonna like it but you know whatever it's not the vain life of pi excluded that we really appreciate ang lee for so who knows who knows Angley's, I mean, people have had this conversation before. I'm not saying anything new. Angley is really interesting in that I don't know what the Ang, what Angley thinks the Angley movies that you know he wants to make are. Right? Like, I think from movie to movie, it's just a whole new game for Ang. Like, yeah, which is which what is makes exciting. him fun. Which is what makes him yeah. interesting. Yes, you never know. So, okay, so back to Suburbicon for a little bit. What? the hell do you think the Coens think of this movie and George Clooney making it 30 years after oh, they, you know, They'll it. never tell Clooney what they really think about this. I think, honestly, I think they were... You think that they're, like, those kind of friends that are just like, you know, good job, George, not just no, being like, George, you fucked this up. I think they're changed the subject friends on this. Oh. I think they're like, hey, what do you think about those 2020 candidates, George? And, like, set him off on a whole other conversation. Mayor Pete, talk to us about Mayor Pete, George. And that's why Fran's going to the grocery yeah. when George comes over. She doesn't because want Fran to have to be... wouldn't be able. Fran would just yeah. be like, She's like Piece I of crap. have to leave, or I'm going to tell him how bad Suburbicon is. Yeah, she would be like Tourette syndrome with uh, with unvarnished opinions. And yeah, no, I, I think I mean again, I may be reading, I may be projecting onto the the Coens a little bit, but I have to imagine the Coens are probably happy that this one got made, uh, got sort of taken out of their realm so that they're never tempted to do it tempted to which make i it. just i bring it up because i think it's a little shitty because i think when this movie was being promoted it was a little bit more on the backs of their names and their style than uh-huh. it was george clooney so who, you think it was shitty like who? i'm sure some people who showed up to this movie thought they were seeing a cohen brothers movie and they were not well, right, but I think Clooney thought he was making a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, but I think they thought they were seeing it in name and in actuality. Like, they thought that the, the movie itself, based off how it was promoted, was yeah. directed by the Coens. Yeah, I mean, that happens. I think, I'll, you know, movies get sold to try and fool audiences. Although, again, that explains the cinema score, because what we have said forever about cinema score is that it is not a measurement of good or bad it's a measurement of how much a movie diverts from expectations and if the expectations were we're going to see a fun cohen's movie not that all cohen's movies are fun it's not like a serious man is fun but 
you know, you have your expectations for a Coen's movie, and this movie falls so far short of it. I think that D minus cinema score is is explained even further. The only way to fail harder than getting an F is to get a D minus. Yep, yep, exactly. I would much rather get you an F. You suck at sucking. I would much rather get an F. Mother forever. That's what the F stands for, forever, because we will remember it <laughs> forever. We will be the preeminent mother historians. Murderer! Love it. Just anyway. want to bring some life into this house. <laughs> We're going to have a fucking time when we do Mother on this podcast. I will tell you what. It's going to be a four-hour episode. We'll invite all our previous guests <laughs> to guest on the Mother episode. It'll be great. Just do a call in. Give us one sentence. Oh, my God. It'll be a telethon. It'll be the Mother telethon. And it will be to save that rundown ramshackle house and with all its broken, unbraced sinks. Anyway. Want to close out uh, Suburbicon and do an IMDb game? Yeah. Do you want to explain the IMDb game? For sure. Listeners? So it's a it's the game that we use to close out our episodes. We each pick an actor to challenge the other with, and that challenge is name the four movies that when you pull up that actor's IMDb, they're the four movies that are under the known for section. So they are the movies that IMDb thinks are the four movies that you would most know these actors for. But because the IMDb algorithm is a fickle little snitchy monster, uh, it, it becomes a fun little tr guessing game of trying to see what the algorithm has spit out for you. So we each try and guess. Each wrong answer is a strike, three strikes, and you are out. And I put out in scare quotes because we're just going to give each other hints at that point and uh, try all and get it all fun. for this All in good not fun necessarily competitive yes after two wrong answers your hint comes in the form of the years for all of the movies you haven't gotten yet we try to avoid actors who are prominent in the marvel cinematic universe and the harry potter universe because their known fours are gunked up with sequels and franchise movies and that makes it less fun unfortunately free scarlett johansson and yeah that's it chris yeah. do you want to give to me Oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, we both were in agreement that Noah Jupe is the best performance in Suburbicon. Agreed. I also mentioned that you can see Noah Jupe in Honey Boy this year, where he is playing oh, no. young Shia LaBeouf. No. Your IMDb game challenge is Shia LaBeouf. <sighs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. No TV. Not as difficult as you think it's going to be. There is no TV, so there's none of that. Like, what was it? Nick Jr. Did he do like, Disney Channel? I don't remember. I don't he care. was Disney Channel. Even Stevens, I'm pretty sure, was Disney Channel. I did not watch, but I had younger siblings. Okay. Um, Shia LaBeouf, one of them is Disturbia. No. Dun, dun, tina, dun, dun, dun. Really? But, uh, um... That's fucked up. That was a big hit. Remember? It was a big Remember hit. that moment yeah. in time where, like, that was a big enough hit that they were like, also Eagle Eye, and people watched yeah. that, sort of? <laughs> Speaking of Julianne Moore performances that are better than Suburbicon, her, her as the voice, voice work in, Eagle in Eagle Eye. Also, going back to our Where the Wild Things Are episode, would have nominated her for a voice performance in Eagle Great. Eye. Great. Anyway, all right. Eagle uh, Eye is fun. First Transformers movie. Yes, Transformers. I will... Reserve my right to guess further Transformers movies, even though I will be annoyed if I have to do that. Uh, holes. No holes. Fuck. So you have uh, 
that's really unfortunate that there's a children's movie called Holes. It's true. Um, or there's any movie called Holes. Um, so you have your two wrong guesses, so I will give you the years. Wait, you have what 2000... if it's a movie called Holes, but it's just about four friends who are all assholes? Oh, that's And you just call it Holes. Good. And it's like Mark Wahlberg. Right, how, how Blockers was originally called <laughs> Cock Blockers. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Holes. All right. oh, blockers is great. Everyone watch Blockers. I know. Um, oh okay, my god! So HBO you're... the other day had game uh, game night followed by Blockers. I'm like, that's Damn. where they exist in my mind is right next to each other. So it's perfect. Blockers is way better than Game Night. I like them both. You can shut up. Uh, um, okay, so your years for Shia LaBeouf mm-hmm. are 2016, 2014, and 2012. Well, these could all be Transformers sequels. God damn it. Um. 2012, 2014, 2016. All right. Is one of these a nymphomaniac? No. No nymphomaniac. All right. Um, Nymphomaniac, which he promoted as being his penis, but like Lars von Trier. Didn't he like like stop making movies by this point? Wasn't this the point where he was going to art exhibits and crying at his own filmography? I think both existed at the same time. Okay. Shia LaBeouf. These are at least one of these movies is some weirdo movie that like. Nope. No, they're all like. No. Are they any? Two of them definitely are this had Oscar buzz movies. One of which maybe you could twist it that way. It's more of a critics thing. It's a movie that you and I both love. That Shia LaBeouf is in. Yes. That was recent. Yes, 2016. Really? I'm a major fan of this movie. What's that? I'm a major fan of this movie. Huh. I, I know you love it too. Because I feel like this was one of maybe one of our like bonding friendship movies about how much we love this movie and nobody was talking about it. How far down the lead uh, the the cast list is he? He's definitely second build. What? This is a can movie. Yeah, I can imagine. Um I can't Won imagine. A prize at Cannes. <laughs> it was a the so first build star is uh it was her first performance. What? Third build star was both on our supporting actress ballots. What? It's a very, very, very long movie. Very long movie. Supporting the title actress. of the movie may be also the title of a song that is in the movie. Oh my god, of course. American Honey. American Honey. All of those things that you said are true. I did love that movie. Dang. Motherfucking Stone Cold Masterpiece. Riley Keough was great in that movie. All of those things are true. Okay. All right. Directed by Andrea Arnold, who will be directing the current season of Big Little Lies, Lies. which, if I'm correct, is this month as of the airing of this episode. Oh, it really is, isn't it? Isn't it April? Is it April? Oh, right, because this this episode airs in April. Right. We're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. Okay. Um, Top of the morning. Two more. Two more. 2014, 2012. And none of these are Transformer sequels. No, they are not Transformer sequels, as noted by these movies having Oscar buzz. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of gave it away, huh? Okay. Are they comedies? No, they are definitely not comedies. They are dramas. Has Shia LaBeouf ever done a comedy? I don't think he has a sense of humor. Okay, I'll I'll help you with one of Please these. One do. of these movies is a very bro movie. I don't. There are there's like two credited women in this movie. Yikes! 
I I defend this movie. This is the 2014. This is the 2014. And you defend he, it. Shia LaBeouf famously ripped out his tooth on the set of this movie. Yikes! Because he thought it was right for the character. Oh, um, shit! I should know this, shouldn't I? He's where in this cast list? Like, he's probably. I mean, I would be willing to bet that he's probably second build, but he's probably like third. He would justifiably be like third. But, like, the real, the, like, star of the movie, like, is never not going to be the top billed person in the movie. But, like, the true lead of the movie is probably not famous enough to be second billed. The true, the true lead of-, of this movie gets a really good-ass performance in this movie. And he's a, like, major actor. Yes. I believe previous IMDb game challenge name. Oh. Person. Okay. All right. Yes. And there are no women in this movie. There's there's like two build women, but they don't even speak English because it's a they speak German. Oh, it's a World War Two movie. Yes. Oh, oh. Specifically around maybe a certain type of fury. War machine. Fury. It's fury. It's it fury. fury. It's a tank. It's fury. Okay. God, I did not Logan like Lerman that movie. Logan Lerman is great in Fury. I love Logan Lerman, but I don't like that movie. Okay, so yeah, 2012. Like 2012. Uh, it's kind of an ensemble movie. This movie also played Can. I don't know why. I hated this movie. <laughs> this is also a very broy movie, but like the lead female character is a major actress. A major actress. Okay, like a major like y- younger, older, and uh, not somebody we necessarily associate like in those type of roles that would delineate her age. Um, <laughs> Ageless. Okay. Multiple no- Oscar-nominated actress. Um, I'm positive that you would have had if. Well, I don't think this was at the time, but like, if the Blankies were around, the other lead performance of this movie, who is not Shia LaBeouf, would have been a major putters and murmurs because I think this is a perennial person in the putters and murmurs category. Uh, Joel Edgerton. Um, no. Um famously on your best actor ballot this year because you are trolling specifically tom hardy oh oh i hated that movie um oh ah fuck it changed titles too it used to be one thing and then it was another as movies that change titles do um fuck why can't i remember the title the original was like oh shit if you commit a crime you have broken what law lawless Yes, it is Fuck. lawless. It was used to. It, it was originally called the Wettest County, which is a terrible <laughs> title, and I'm not surprised that they changed it. But I still would have rather that they would have kept it as the Wettest County. That's like that's like a fucking like Tropic Thunder trailer for like some prestige movie, The Wettest County. Jesus Christ! Yes, who was the director? Was that uh, uh, John Hickenlooper? Hillcoat. Movies I hate uniformly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that was rough. I apologize to all our listeners for making you follow me on that journey. Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, won't be doing that. Like the Drag Race episode where Alyssa Edwards had to apologize on Twitter to Katy Perry. (laughs) Please apologize to Shia LaBeouf. All right. So I mentioned before that one of my favorite, if not my favorite, George Clooney directed movie 
was Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, starring Sam Rockwell as as gong show host Chuck Barris. The female lead of that movie, one of my favorite oh. actresses, who we talked about extensively several episodes ago uh, when we talked about riding in cars with boys yeah. with Bo and Yang, is our lisping queen... Drew Barrymore. So, Barrymore. Please guess the four known four movies for Drew Barrymore. Okay. Um, Drew Barrymore. Charlie's Angels. Nope. Ugh. Um, Charlie's Angels never comes up, and I've guessed it for multiple. No, things. Charlie's Angels was on um, Cameron Diaz's. No, Full Throttle was, wasn't it? No, Full Throttle was on Demi Moore's. Oh, okay. Well, then it comes up a lot, apparently. Just not on Drew Barrymore. Listeners, I can remember this type of information, but I can barely remember to tie my shoes in the morning. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Okay, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Um, 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 scream. No, and you, that's the real gag of the season. All right, so Gotta that's- be kidding me. Well, two I strikes. Mean, not, yeah. I think that billing kind of matters for the uh, for whatever the algorithm is, and she's not top bill. Well, she's the female um, lead in all right. four of these movies, so I will say your Damn. years are. Two of them are nineteen ninety eight. One of them is nineteen ninety nine, and one of them is two thousand four. Nineteen ninety eight is the wedding singer yep. and ever after. Yep. Uh, nineteen ninety nine is never been kissed. Yep. What was the other year? 2004. 2004. Ooh. Is it... How do we feel You've about the wedding singer? You've got to be kidding singer? me. Is it duplex? It's not duplex, thank goodness. That's 2003. Because like, that's the bad post-Charlie's post Angels years. I'm pretty sure that movie was 2003, so I think you're safe. Yes. Oh. Um, how do we feel about the wedding singer? Yeah. It does not age well, but like, really, oh, I liked it at the time. I mean, the stuff with uh, the unfortunate, like stuff with Alexis Arquette in that movie is not oh, a comfortable thing to watch. I forgot about that. Um, the the love story of it is very very sweet. I mostly Julia think of Julia. John Lovitz going, "Good luck finding a DJ who can move and shake <laughs> like this." Romantic lady. Single baby, mm, sophisticated mama. Come on, you disco lady. Say to me tonight, mama. Yes, it's ladies' night. Oh, what a night! Chakon. <laughs> and then that like weird curtain gag. He's losing his mind, and I'm reaping all the benefits. Julia Guglia will always be funny. Hey, yeah. Linda, you're a bitch. Will always be funny <laughs> from that cute little boy. Yeah. Um. Uh, okay. So 2004. This era. Is it Fever Pitch? No, that was 2005. You're really painting the corner on this one. remember it by the time period i uh, give me some more hints well uh the biggest hint is the movie we were just talking about the wedding singer yeah why is that a hint is it an i mean most of her movies are romantic comedy so it's not just that it's a pro it's probably a romantic comedy yeah but uh, but more specifically a romantic comedy featuring drew barrymore and Weddings? No. <laughs> no. No. Who's who whose wedding? 
Uh, is it a specific? No, I guess what? it's not his wedding. Who's 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 in there with fucking who's Sir fucking co-star? Oh, Adam Sandler. Yeah. Um, I never saw this movie. Fifty First Dates. Yes, correct. Damn. This I is a movie that is much later. more popular in the general population why. than it is with me, and it seems like you as well. I also I think never that's think because about this it's movie. like a movie that's constantly on like TNT, right? I remember I was at trivia. We last do a lot week. of shitting on like TNT on this podcast. We were. I was at trivia last week, and the category was '90s, and so they were like, "What's the movie that Drew Barrymore starred in with Adam Sandler in the '90s?" And I, of course, knew, but my entire team jumped right to Fifty First Dates, and they were like, Fifty First Dates," and I'm like, first of all, that wasn't in the '90s. Second of all, "Wedding Singer" is the A movie, and Fifty First Dates" is like the D movie, and I don't understand why you don't all agree with me on this. Fifty First Dates" is 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 several times less interesting or good or important like talk about erasure the julia gulia erasure mm-hmm. among True. the populace is not right, anyway, acceptable you did better than i did at imdb Are game once me? again i bombed out right away yeah but then you rattled that's them like off once i gave you the years ever. anyway Anyway, anyway, that's our episode. Um, our minds have been in Suburbicon, but if you want more um, of this head Oscar buzz, you can bum bum beat em, bum bum beat em, bum over to this head Oscar buzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell us where, tell the listeners where they can find more of your bum bum biddy em bums. You can find it in Disturbia, where I am. Right now and always. You can also find me on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R E I D. I'm also on Letterboxd, Joe Reed, spelled the exact same way. And that's that on that. All right. And I am also on Twitter at Chris V File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterboxd at Chris V File, where you can find our running IMDb game, uh, or our This Had Oscar Buzz list that has IMDb game stats and direct links to our episodes. You can also find me on thefilmexperience.net. And we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. So please be our Julianne Moore and help us collect this life insurance on the other Julianne Moore. That's all for this week, and we hope you come back for next week for more Bum Bum Be Dum Bum Buzz.